Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. We'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 1 to uh, 20 today. Uh, and uh, many uh, great stories begin with a dream or desire of a person, a character. Often in the end, they get uh, what they want in, in some form or another. They find the treasure which they set out to find. They win the battle which was uh, set before them. They uh, get the prince. They find the princess, whatever that might be. But sometimes in a story, you don't necessarily get to see what the person, uh, what get, the person doesn't get what they want. They don't get that want or desire. This is what maybe we would call and generally apply to the villain in the story. The villain is the one that wants the princess that doesn't get the princess. They're uh, the one that uh, wants to win the battle, but in the end loses the battle. They're the one that wants the treasure, but loses the treasure. Rarely, and and particularly more in today's stories, uh, we do hear of some people wanting the wrong desire, wrong thing, and in the end of the course, they actually get what they truly needed, not what they wanted at the start. But I think some, there are great stories, uh, authors, playwriters, directors that can grip with this concept in the end, and you find out that it is not victory that they seize or treasure that they find, but loss or death, sad or sorrow. You think of King Lear by Shakespeare, Macbeth, or Moby Dick by Herbin Melville, or The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Each of these main characters desire something, but in the end it's their desire that leads to their death or demise. King Lear, it's, he wants a legacy left behind. Macbeth, he, he wants to be king. He finally seizes this chance and opportunity to be king. King a, 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 Captain Ahab seeks to be able to find and kill Moby Dick the Great Whale, and it's in this pursuit of finding Moby Dick, it's his end and demise. Gatsby, he wants the girl, Daisy, and in the end he loses everything. And so we have this in our story tonight. We see the end of Jeroboam's reign. Jeroboam seeks to be able to grab hold of something, his desire, his want. And so we find ourselves in this uh, story that we are in uh, with the problem that we face is we find ourselves in a large gripping story right from when Saul began uh, reigning in 1 Samuel right to the end of 2 Kings. We go through a large period of time flipping and changing through history, so I think it's helpful for us to be able to understand where we're at. We're still in the early stages of their reign, the, the divided kingdom, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And particularly, we're still in this period of time underneath Jeroboam's reign. I think this is somewhat close to... Uh, in the second portion of his reign, probably close to the end, but although we do not know for sure. But here, uh, we've seen Jeroboam's life and we've focused on his life for a large amount of time. He's had two major things happen in his life, both including prophets. The first was when he was told by Ahijah 
that he was going to be king of the ten tribes, that image of that new garment shed into twelve, uh, torn into twelve pieces, and ten of those pieces is going to be to Jeroboam. And this is exactly what happens. The kingdom divides and ten tribes follow Jeroboam in the north. The second also included a prophet, this man of God, unnamed as we looked at. And, but he prophesies against him, against these altars that he had erected in Dan and Bethel, that they would be destroyed, that they would be destroyed from one in the house of Judah named Josiah. We noted in that study that the first part of chapter 13, that this prophecy was specifically against the altars and not specifically against Jeroboam. And this is important. Now the end of verse uh, chapter 13 ends this way and it says, This thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. The erection of these altars once more became the sin which would destroy Jeroboam's house. Because tonight we see the third and final scene of Jeroboam's life, which also includes a prophet through his wife. And this prophecy is not against Jeroboam's altars, but particularly about Jeroboam and his house. Now what we need to be reminded of from all these scenes that have gone before, and that this scene will help us understand the, the prophets in this final scene. The first is that Jeroboam is told, before he takes the throne, what he must do to be able to have a long-lasting kingdom. In chapter 11, as Ahijah goes and tells Jeroboam if, that his kingdom is going, the, the kingdom underneath Solomon's son Rehoboam is going to be torn. And he says, Ahijah speaks of God and he says, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did. I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give you Israel. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. But then we find out what he actually does do in chapter 12. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up, offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So we see here that God says he will give all that his heart, all that his soul desires. You shall be king over Israel. And then the second portion explains that Jeroboam's worried, he says in his heart, if they continue to go back down to Jerusalem, then the kingdom will be torn from me. I will die and Rehoboam will be their king. So we see Jeroboam's heart and his desire is to remain and wants to be king. He wants his house to be built. But what gets taken away from him? It's exactly that, his house, his kingdom. So we need to first understand the scene which we see in verses 1 to 3. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick 
And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam. And go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said to me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Now it's confusing throughout all this time. You have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. You have Abijah, Ahijah. Then we'll have Elijah and Elisha. And so it's hard to be able to keep up. But here Abijah, with a B, is the son of Jeroboam. And he falls sick. And he instructs his wife to be able to go to Ahijah with a H, the prophet, which we met before, meeting Jeroboam uh, about the ten tribes and dividing that garment. And so Abijah, the prophet, told Jeroboam that he would have the kingdom. So why then does Jeroboam seek to be able to go with all this secrecy? Now we're not told. Why does he tell his wife to disguise himself? Jeroboam's last resort, but clearly reacted badly to the man of God with the altar. So maybe now he's worried that what he had done with the altar has now affected him. Maybe he doesn't want to get rebuked. And if he doesn't know it's uh, Jeroboam, then he can't hold that against him. Or have the people who are worshipping all those false gods go and find out that they go to the prophet of God. Uh, We see the battle of the prophets later in 1 Kings. So maybe he's seeking to be able to do that. Maybe he he doesn't want news to be able to go out and find out travel that he's powerless because his son is sick. Or nations would be able to find out his about his son and realize he was distracted and then start a war. Maybe his wife is concerned about her son and he's not sure. We don't get any more information about Jeroboam. Interesting, though, this is the last aspect that we find out about Jeroboam, is that he sends his wife to be able to go talk to the prophet, the man of God. But yet a sad thing for us maybe to be able to ponder and reflect upon. So we have this scene said, Jeroboam sent his wife to Abijah the prophet to be able to ask about what's going to happen to his son. And we find out this introduction in verses 4 to 6. So here we are in verses 4 to 6. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And the Lord said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of your concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. When she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet, as she came in at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. So we see here, uh, going from uh, Tizra to uh, Shiloh, where Ahijah is, the prophet. And although we're told that he is blind, dim because of age, cataracts is uh, something that happens in common with age. And you see this is often the, the marker of age in, in the Bible, is that when they grow to an age that uh, they're unable to be able to see. So he's not able to be able to see who this woman is, so the disguise is almost useless. But here the Lord speaks uh, to him and tells him and of this encounter. Obviously, he knows right from the very beginning that he has unbearable news to be able to tell 
uh, Jeroboam's wife. So we see that he's older than before, and Ahijah up front tells her that it is unbearable news. This word translated uh, differently throughout the Bible, but it gives you the idea. But Israel's harsh uh, slavery is the same word there used of this unbearable news. This slavery in which the Israelites bore underneath Pharaoh is the same type of news that Jeroboam's wife would uh, uh, have this day, or stubborn, fierce, severe. Now we have the scene set, the introductions done. What is it that Jeroboam is told through the prophet Abijah? And so we find out in verses 7 to 11. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken of it. We see three movements in this prophecy. First, of what God promised. Second, what Jeroboam did. And third, what is going to happen. You see this, what God promised. God opens and says in the very beginning that the God... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you. Here, God exalts Jeroboam to the place and position of power, but he also humbles him in this moment. But God does not act like David, his servant, acted. This is exactly what is told when Abijah first met Jeroboam on that road when they separated the twelve pieces of garments and he got ten and he said, If you keep my commandments, if you follow after the ways after David my servant followed. But yet Jeroboam was not like David. See this clearly, uh, verse 9, But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. This is central and key to what is happening in Jeroboam in his heart. He has done evil as king. He's made other gods and metal images. Now that's not what he said to the people. He said to the other people that these golden calves represent God who saved you from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. But we also need to notice that here God's anger is provoked because of the making of these images, not particularly for the worshiping of them. Now, I think many people want to seek to be able to divide the second commandment and say you shouldn't make and worship images. 
Making is fine, just not making and worshiping them. Yet I think what we see time and time again, it's not only the worshiping of made images, it's the making of images that leads to worship. And I think this is what's heightened in the second commandment, what's heightened throughout all of what we see in 1 Kings, particularly in this moment here, is the making of those images. That the first commandment forbids worshiping of any other creature and serving God and him alone. The second commandment specifically is about making images. But of all this, Jeroboam has cast the Lord behind his back. This vivid, vivid image here of that God has saved his people countless times, shown them grace and mercy above grace and mercy. And here Jeroboam is is given a chance to be able to lead God's people, the blessing of God upon his house, to be able to rule over God's flock. And here Jeroboam throws God aside, discards him like a piece of trash thrown behind him. And all of these three things, the evil that he does, the making of images, the casting behind the back, all provokes the Lord to anger. That here that we see the, the serious effects of sin, that sin is then dealt with by God in a serious way. We often notice in the Bible the Lord's response, that here he gets angry. We often don't stop to be able to stop and think about what actual sin was it that caused God's anger? In this case, it's the evil that he does, the making that he does, the casting aside of God. Things that we would say, they're, good, they're sins, but surely they're not going to make the Lord angry. The things that make us angry often are not the things that would make the Lord angry. But here it is the making of images that's the, the casting him aside, the evil. But I think specifically in this instance, it's the making of idols that's essential to Jeroboam's great folly and sin. Or in Judges chapter 2, this is exactly what happened. And they abandoned the Lord, cast him aside, and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Specifically in Judges 2, it's about them casting the Lord aside, them bowing down to those other gods that provoke him to anger. But listen to 1 Kings chapter 16. More of the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Basha and his house, both because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam and also because he destroyed it, or First Kings chapter 13, uh, 16, verse 13. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of uh, Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Or First Kings chapter 16, verse 26. And he, for he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in the, in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord to anger, the God of Israel to anger by their idols. 
1 Kings chapter 16, verse 13, 33. And Ahab made Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The emphasis here in this, this time is, is them making these idols to be able to worship them. And it grows as we see in this book of Kings. It's, it, it, it escalates as it continues. But we can sit here and justify Jeroboam. He just wanted to keep Israel out of the hands of Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam was not a good king. He was not loving to God's people. He was not like David, his father. He just wanted to, Jeroboam just wanted to make it easier for them to worship. But yet it's by Jeroboam's sin that causes the Lord to be angry with him. Before we move to the third portion about what's going to happen to Jeroboam, we need to stop and look at something very interesting here. That in, in all this time, Jeroboam's leading the people astray, causing them to worship other gods, false gods. But right at the very beginning here, the prophet tells him, Ahijah tells him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I have exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people, Israel. That here, they're still called God's people. When we look at the story of Israel and Judah, we see God's faithfulness. That here, God is still their king and Israel is still his people. That here that they've made sacrifices, that there's these altars, and they're not burning sacrifices of incense to God in the prescribed way. They would travel out of their way to be able to go up to Dan to avoid going down to Jerusalem. To be able to make their sacrifices on this man-made altar. Yet in the midst of this whoredom that they go through from Israel, God still says that they are his people, that he is still their God. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 43, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers that shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and a flame shall not consume you. Or Hosea, a prophecy directly uh, towards this northern kingdom. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adamah? How can I treat you like Zedobim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. That we have all failed and fallen short. On the 10th day of 2024, and we're already nine days behind in our reading plan, or we haven't prayed as much as we thought, we haven't done what we thought we would do, we have failed the Lord time and time again, and yet here he says, even in amongst this rebellious people, he says, and still identifies himself, and says, I am still their God, and they are still my people. 
that we see God's faithfulness even in amongst this time when they have been unfaithful. So what is this third part and portion? What God said, what Jeroboam did, and now what is going to happen? See it in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, in the city, the dogs will eat, and anyone who dies in the open country, birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. They have cast God behind their back. And now God will cast out Jeroboam and cut him off. The house of Jeroboam will be like a fire. There will be one day when it's there, and then the next it will be gone. Something grand and great, like a tall oak tree, that will be diminished into a pile of ash. The image that is used here is this this pile of burning dung. Jeroboam's kin will die horrific deaths. They will have no grave to be able to bury them in. Dogs eating them in the city, birds eating them in open country. Death was the last chapter of uh, people's lives, and it was to be done in this culture with dignity and respect. Those who lived a horrific life or those in society that were low, beggars and criminals, they would not have a grave to remember. They would die and have no respect. As you saw uh, in, in chapter 13, that, that prophet, the man of God, that unnamed prophet who, who died by the hands of a lion, he, he was shown respect by being buried in a grave, not left on the side of a street. But here Jeroboam, the king, and his family will ha- not have that respect. Now, why did Jeroboam send his wife to Ahijah? Well, because of his son. He wanted to know what was going to happen to Abijah. So now, Ahijah the prophet tells Jeroboam's wife, Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Now this child, there is no age given. This is the same term that is used of David's son, seven days old, or the 42 boys who mocked the bald prophet, they're old enough to be able to talk. Abijah, we're told that there is something in him that the Lord finds pleasing. Something good in him. Now we're not told what that thing is that is pleasing to the Lord. I think it most likely is that what he finds pleasing is is his heart his attitude, his, his love, his respect for the Lord, that he true is a true worshiper like David was a true worshiper. It seems like a harsh response 
that the one person in Jeroboam's house that, that pleases the Lord is the one that dies the first. But actually, he's the one that is spared from the curse. One, explainer, one commentator explained it well. This is the only place in which any northern royalty is commended by God. It seems that Yahweh spares this boy from experience the full force of the covenant curse. Any kinds of questions remind, remain for us. Why do all the males suffer for the sin of one, their leader? Is a child to, is so commendable, why is he not spared? But our writer is not interested in helping us through our angst-ridden questions. These answers remained enveloped in the sovereign purposes of God. Instead, he makes it clear that even in the midst of judgment, our God remembers mercy. That here we see this one person of Jeroboam's household who will be buried, respected, who would be honored, who would be mourned. We need to be reminded that God not only places kings on the throne, but he can also take kings from their thrones as well. That here we see God's mercy to this child, Abijah. But there's also in this a prophecy not just against Jeroboam, but also a prophecy against Israel. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who should cut off the house of Jeroboam today and henceforth. The Lord shall strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and the root up Israel out of the good land which he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give up Israel up because of their sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. This is a legacy that is left by Jeroboam. His kingdom will be burnt. Israel will be plucked up like a plant by the root about 200 years later. Not to linger on this, but why are they cast out? Because they made their ashram, again, the making of the idols, provoking the Lord to anger. And we see in the end of this, it's fulfilled. Jeroboam rises from this. She makes no comment. She's silent. And here, the child dies. And Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tizra. And as he came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. We see the fulfillment of the prophecy of the child died. We see the fulfillment of Jeroboam's house being destroyed in 1 Kings chapter 15. Verse 29, as soon as he was king, he was killed in the house of Jeroboam. He left the house of Jeroboam. Not one that breathed until he had destroyed it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And then also the prophecy against Israel in Second Kings chapter 17. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out from his sight. 
None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Jeroboam dies. His house, his dreams shattered. His kingdom lost and burnt. All that he ever wanted in life was taken from him. This is how the story ends about Jeroboam. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned. Behold, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his father. And Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Here we see his life comes to a close. What's set up and what's given to him, all shattered. His dreams, desires, his hopes, his plans left. Jeroboam is now the measure of a bad king looking to one who would come, who would reign, who would be a better king. See, God's promises to be able to save, God's mercy to be able to be shown. But also questions linger about what is going to happen to Israel. Are there any in Israel who truly worship the Lord? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.